Section number one of Solario the Tailor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shashank Jakmola. Solario the Tailor by William Bowen. The First Night. Story of the Man in the Spangled Coat. You must know, began the old man that i am a tailor by name solario in the reign of the good king fortman the ninth ah interrupted the king that was my great-grandfather bless my soul master tailor you must have been imprisoned under the forest pool nearly a hundred years ago hm i dare say you know what you're talking about but my dear said the queen I'm quite sure that the ninth fortman was your great-great-grandfather and not your great-grandfather, though of course I may be mistaken. But it seems to me that it was the tenth fortman who was your great-grandfather, because the ninth had an oldest son who married into Stiffish family, if I recollect the name correctly, or perhaps it was Standish, and at any rate he died without any children while his father was alive, and the younger son came into the— Never mind, never mind, said the king. You mustn't interrupt. Let the man go on with his story. You must know, began the old man again, that in the reign of the good king Fortmain the ninth, I practised my art as a tailor in the city of Vernicroft, a thriving and busy city, located in a corner of the great forest remote from Vernicroft, said the king. I don't understand it. There's no such busy city now. There's nothing but a little ruined hamlet away over at the other side of the... Well, said the queen, perhaps at that time... Don't interrupt, said the king. Let the man go on. You must know, began the old man again, that I had risen to a considerable eminence in my profession. I do not pretend to say that I was the very best tailor in the kingdom, for I am far too modest to speak of my own merit, but the uh, spangled coat in which you now see me was a creation of my own brain, and at the time it was thought to be... Uh, however it speaks for itself i think it's a perfect sight whispered beaujean to botkin it is true i was growing old but i was very well satisfied there was no one dependent on me my clients were numerous and rich and i enjoyed the respect due an artist and man of substance i had saved a good deal of money for i had never squandered any in foolish gifts nor wasted any in ridiculous pleasures nor but I do not wish to boast. That's a wonderful thing to brag about, whispered Botkin to Beaujean. One morning, a balmy morning in spring, I was sitting cross-legged on my work-table at the rear of my shop, busily plying the needle, when a stranger, richly dressed, entered my open door from the street and approached me, bowing courteously. He was a handsome man, wearing a short beard, and I remarked with surprise, by contrast with his beard, that he was utterly without eyebrows. Sir, said he, have I the pleasure of addressing the renowned Salario, whose genius has caused our city to be envied wherever art is prized? I confess that I was the person. My master, he went on, is a nobleman, 
to whose ears the rumour of your skill and taste has penetrated, although he lives in retirement and hears not much of the outer world. I trust that you are at liberty to undertake a piece of work for him. I assured him that I was. My master, he proceeded, is, I must warn you, unable to satisfy himself, in the matter now in hand, with less than absolute perfection. Already he has been disappointed in some eight other tailors, and he has learned of your superlative excellence with much hope, and, in order that he may assure himself how well his report of you is justified, he has commanded me to entrust to you a small commission, to wit, to sew on this button. I was greatly mortified at this lame conclusion of so promising a speech. I suspected that the stranger was making game of me, but his manner was so respectful that I held my peace and watched him without a word while he took from under his short blue velvet cloak a package and deposited it before me on my table proceeded to undo it. This old fellow talks like he was writing a composition, whispered Botkin to Beaujon. Oh, he's a conceited pumpkin, whispered Beaujon. He loves to hear himself talk and I bet you he's thinking we're thinking we never heard such fine language in our lives. That's him, all over. The doublet with the missing button. The package contained a doublet, of a material I had never seen before, very thin and glossy, of a texture like that of wasp's nest but very tough. The doublet contained ten buttonholes, but only nine buttons. One button, and one only, was missing. I have here, said my visitor coolly, the missing button, and my master will be obliged if you will see it on. Solario was sitting on his work table, busily plying the needle. He produced the button, a large ivory one, which, with the garment, he held up before me in his left hand. Please to hold out your left hand, said he. I did so and with his own left hand he placed the garment and the button in mine. This doublet, said he, must not pass from one to another, but by the left hand. Please to remember that. And now, adieu. I will return to-morrow. Meantime, he laid on my table a small purse, and bowing with sober courtesy, he left the shop. I turned up the purse, and a number of gold coins fell out, enough to pay for sewing on five hundred buttons. Ah, thought I, at this rate I can well afford to gratify my new client's whimsies. The next day the courteous stranger returned for the doublet. I delivered it with my left hand into his own left hand, the button being attached firmly in place. He thanked me and departed, but on the morning after he reappeared, to my surprise, and as he came in, he smiled at me and shook his head at me vaguishly. Fie, Master Saladio, said he, how could you have treated me so, and a mere button too, really, my good Saladio. He produced the doublet and showed me that it lacked a button in the same place as before. He held up in one hand the ivory button and in the other a length of thread. I was perplexed. The thread had not been cut, of that I was sure. It was the identical thread, and of the identical length. You will not blame my master, said the stranger, if he finds himself a little aggrieved. He had scarcely put on the doublet yesterday when the button came off in his hand. 
I was commanded to leave it with you once more, together with this trifling honorarium. So saying, he dropped a little purse on my table as before, and after putting the garment and its button into my left hand with his own left hand, bowed himself out. I turned up the purse in haste, and poured out a number of gold coins, as before, but this time twice as many. I put away the gold into my coffer, and sewed on the button once more, with special care. I whipped the thread around itself under the button, sewed it through the girds, doubled it back through the button, wound it, and knotted it, and doubled it back, and altogether made such a job of it, however painful to me as an artist, as was perfect for security. I don't see, interrupted the king, what all this business about a button has to do with. If your majesty will pardon me, said the old tailor, I have not yet reached the end of my story. I am well aware of it, said the king, but still I don't see. My dear, said the queen, sweetly, and the old man went on with his story. Next morning the stranger returned for the doublet. I delivered it into his left hand with my left, and he turned to go. At the door he looked back at me smiling, and was about to bow himself out, when he paused to try the button with his fingers. A slight frown came over his face. He pulled the button gently, and behold, there before my eyes, I assure you, I saw it with these very eyes, the button came off into his hand. He sighed, looked at me gravely, and held out the button in one hand and the doublet in the other. Alas, good Master Solario, said he, you have not treated me well. The hopes I entertain for your profit are at an end. It remains only for me to apologize for my intrusion, and for you to return to me the money which I have left with you. This was too much. The idea of returning money which had once been locked safely in my coffer was more than I could bear. I sprang down from my table. One moment, I cried. I beg of you, that I should not be able to see you on a miserable button. It is too ridiculous. Let me see your master myself, and prove to him what I can do. Take me to him at once. Let him assign me any task whatever, and I swear to you. You wish to see my master, said the stranger. At once, I cried. Do not carry back to him a report of me so unjust. I must see him myself. Be careful what you say said the stranger. You may be sorry. Impossible, said I. Take me to him at once. The stranger looked at me thoughtfully. If I take you, said he, swear that you will never blame me for what may happen. I swear it, I cried. You will remember that I warned you. On my own head be it. Let us go at once. Very well, then. The decision is yours, not mine. Remember that. I will return for you to-night, and you will then, if you are still of the same mind, be ready to accompany me to my master. He tucked the doublet with its button under his cloak, and in another moment he was gone. That night, after dark, as I was putting up my shutters, a splendid coach and pair, driven by a black man in a rich but sombre livery, stopped at my door, and the smiling stranger descended. I ran into the shop, and put on my best attire. Some time before, I had designed and executed the coat in which you now see me. It had been much admired. I put it on, and hastened now to the stranger, who bowed me politely into the carriage. 
During our journey, my companion exerted himself to be agreeable, and I, on my part, fairly unloosed the rein of conversation, an art in which, I confess, I had always taken the greatest pleasure. On this occasion I surpassed myself. I drew upon the mysteries of our noble craft for his entertainment. I was by turns humorous and grave. I was at my best. It would not be too much to say that I sparkled, and in short, when the carriage stopped, I realized that I had taken no note of our route. We drew up in a street which was unfamiliar to me. As we alighted, I observed before me a high wall, extending in either direction as far as I could see, and immediately at hand a little door in the wall, toward which my companion led me. He pulled a bell-rope, and we were at once admitted by a second black man, in the livery I had already seen. I was aware, in spite of the darkness, that we were in a garden, or rather park, of immense dimensions. THE DARK MANSION IN THE WALLED PARK I could see the dark outline of what appeared to be a great mansion. There were no lights anywhere. The air was heavy with the perfume of flowers, a clawing perfume, oppressively sweet. We came, after a considerable walk, to the house. At my companion's knock, a door was opened by a servant, black like the other two. We entered a narrow hall, and at the end of this hall we reached a door, which was opened by a fourth man, servant, black like the others, and after ascending a flight of stairs, and traversing several spacious apartments, we came to a pause in a small but elegant room, where my companion left me. In a moment he returned, and beckoned me to come with him. He opened a door, gently pushed me through, closed the door behind me, and left me, as he advanced, blinking under the light of a hundred candles in a room more superb than any I had ever seen. The coloured tiles of the floor, the thick rugs, the curious vases, the pictured tapestries on the walls, I took them all in at a glance, and I was aware at the same time of an aroma like that of the flowers in the garden, but very faint. The tailor meets the tall black man and his fair daughter. At one end of the apartment was a table, loaded with fruit and flowers and wine. At the other end, on a divan, sat a tall and majestic man, dressed in the most exquisite taste. His skin was ebony black, he wore drooping black moustaches, and his hair was long and black. But I observed that he was, like the courteous stranger, totally without eyebrows. At his feet, on a cushion, sat a lady, young and beautiful, a lady divinely beautiful, more beautiful than any I had ever seen or dreamed of. Her complexion, it was all cream and roses. Her eyes, they were blue of the blueness of violets, and they were merry and soft together. Her hair, I swear I can see her at this moment. Her hair was of the... But I must not allow myself to think of her. The black man and the wonderful lady rose, and my companion presented me. You are welcome, Solario, said the tall black man, smiling graciously. You have wished to see me, as I hear, and to give me proof of your skill. But we can converse better while we refresh ourselves. You observe that the table is set for four. My daughter has, as you see, already counted upon your company. I hope you will consent to accept our poor hospitality. 
We seated ourselves at the table. My host clapped his hands four times, and four serving men entered, bearing the first course. They were black, like the four I had already seen. They were without eyebrows, and I seemed to remember the same defect in the other four. Eight men servants, all black, and all without eyebrows. I was puzzled, and when I looked from the fair face of the lady opposite me to the black face of her father, I was completely mystified. As for my stranger, he scarcely took his eyes from the damsel, and from the manner in which she now and then returned his gaze, I could see that they were on a footing of tenderness. When we were at the end of our repast, and were trifling with our grapes and wine, my black host addressed himself directly to me. I was in a mellow mood. I felt that I could scarcely have denied him anything, and as for his daughter, if she had bade me run for her sake to the ends of the... Well, the wine was excellent. I sniffed in it the same aroma I had noticed twice before, and I was in consequence of it in that state of peace which in other circumstances would have preceded slumber. My host leaned toward me in the friendliest attitude. The Black Prince tells his story. My dear Solario, said he, you are asking yourself, all this while, who I am. I am a prince, heir to the throne of the distant kingdom of Wen. My skin was formerly white, like my daughter's. It was changed, as you see it now, by the power of an enemy, and I am awaiting here, in exile, with my daughter and my friend, the release which day and night I dream of. If you are not too weary, I will relate to you the adventure which brought me here and changed my skin. With all my heart, said I, whereupon, without further preamble, he commenced. The Story of the Black Prince No most excellent salario, he began, that my father, the King of Wen, called me to him one day, and sitting down with me, addressed me as follows. My son, said he. Is it a long story? asked the king, yawning behind his hand. It is very interesting, said the old tailor. Not what I asked, said the king. Is it long? Well, well, said the old man. Then we will hear it another time, said the king. Pray let us hear what happened to you. The old man bowed, quite crestfallen, and proceeded with his story. Oh, shucks! said Beaujon to Botkin. When the Black Prince had concluded his own tale, he paused, and then said to me, Now, Solario, as to those circumstances of my misfortune which precede the tale, I have just told you, I will, if you consent, call on my good friend here, who was personally concerned in them, to relate them to you. Whereupon he nodded to my companion, who at once commenced. THE STORY OF THE COURTEOUS STRANGER You must know, he began, that soon after my arrival at the city of— What has this got to do with your being enchanted by the witch? said the king. Well, said Solario, its bearing on what afterward happened to me is perhaps a little indirect, but I assure your majesty that— No, no, said the king, I never sit up late, and it's getting on toward my bedtime. The old man sighed. When the courteous stranger had finished his story, the black prince gazed at me for a moment. Solario, said he, 
I will tell you the conclusion of the whole matter in a word. To him who shall deliver me from this bill, I will give five hundred thousand pieces of gold of the money of your country. And Salario, he said, bending toward me and pointing at me with his finger, I believe you are the man. Visions of Salario, the tailor, as the richest man in Vernicroft, flashed before my eyes and left me dizzy. It is a matter of sewing on a button, said the prince. I am allowed nine tailors for the trial, on the principle that nine tailors are the equivalent of one. Ahem, I beg your pardon. Eight tailors have already essayed it and failed. You are the ninth. And what has become of the other eight? I asked, with some misgiving. The black prince smiled. You have already seen them, said he. I... I exclaimed in amazement. Eight tailors who could not sew on a single button. Four of them served our table here tonight, and the other four you have met between your shop and this room. The eight black servants, I cried. Precisely, said the prince. I must tell you that he who fails comes himself under the spell, his skin changes to black, and he remains here with me in my retirement. If you deliver me, you deliver also these other eight. If you fail, you condemn yourself and all of us to everlasting misery. You are our final hope. What do you say? I was becoming almost light-headed with the prospect of my reward. Perhaps the wine had something to do with it. Perhaps it was the prince's daughter, who smiled upon me bewitchingly. You have already seen my doublet, said the prince. So long as it remained intact, no harm could touch me. But my enemy, as I have related to you, succeeded in detaching from it a single button, and taking away the thread. Instantly all its virtue was gone. I was helpless. To the mischance I owe all my misery, my happiness hangs on a button. Take the doublet, Solario, and find the thread which will withstand sorcery. Three months are allowed you. Here are the doublet and the button. Guard them as you would your life, and may you return to receive my thanks and the fortune which awaits you. With his left hand he placed the doublet and the button in my left hand. The perfume of the wine seemed to grow heavier. I was very drowsy. I tried to speak. I could not arouse myself. I was conscious of the eager smile of the prince's daughter, and I knew no more. When I came to myself, I was in my bed behind the shop, and it was morning. My first thought was that I had an unusual dream, but there on the pillow beside me lay the identical doublet and button, and I found myself wearing the spangled coat of the evening before. I jumped up and prepared my breakfast, but I could not eat. A desperate case I had gotten myself into, indeed. Where on earth should I obtain a thread which would withstand sorcery, and if I should fail? I pushed aside my food and buried my face in my hands. I heard the bell over my shop door tinkle, as if some customer were coming in. I paid no attention. Why had I allowed this hopeless enterprise to be thrust upon me? I was lost. The tailor is visited by a hideous old woman. I heard a cackle of unpleasant laughter. I looked up quickly and saw, sitting at the opposite side of my table, a little old woman, extremely hideous of face, hook-nosed, toothless, and wrinkled, munching her gums and watching me with little, malicious eyes. 
the ancient hag did not leave me long in doubt about her business master taylor said she the fortune is yours if you will have it her voice was like nothing so much as the cackling of dry words in a brisk fire never mind what i know nor how i know it she went on answering my thought before i spoke what would you give to know where and how to obtain the thread which will hold the button anything i cried that is almost anything would you marry i thought of the adorable young lady whom i had seen the night before willingly i said that is yes i think then i will tell you the condition on which you may have the thread you must marry me i looked at the frightful old creature then i laughed and laughed i could not help it she arose in a great fury grasped the crooked stick with which she bore with her and hobbled toward the door you shall never find it she said no never you shall be a black and penniless outcast you shall wish you had never been born you are lost 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 that terrible prospect sobered me if this woman could by any chance save me from such a fate what price would be too great come back i said i will think it over speak said she will you or will you not i looked at her she was very old she could not live long at best she might not live until the wedding day and if she should a man of my wealth and power could afterward find the means of mitigating the horrors of such a marriage how do i know you can perform your promise i asked you need not perform yours until i have performed mine come master taylor will you or will you not i will said i on the day when i receive my fortune from the prince i will marry you merciful powers good said she now listen to me the thread which will hold the button is the single black hair in the tail of the white unicorn alb who feeds in the half-moon pasture of corby by the river tarn listen carefully while i tell you what you must do she then gave me the most minute directions and when she had finished she arose and hobbled to the door stop i said tell me who you are and where you live and when i shall see you again she answered never a word she was gone the jolly mule driver and his sing-song i wrote down all i could remember of her instructions and went out into the street to cool my burning head as i stood before the door i heard a jingling of little bells and a voice singing and shouting and saw coming toward me down the street a train of five or six mules driven by a short fellow in a leather jerkin on foot who was singing raucously and shouting lustily to his animals his face was gay and humorous and he cracked his whip merrily good mules for hire he sang good mules for hire will bring you to your heart's desire we laugh at trade and snow and mire we never lag and never tire we thread our way through ice and fire good mules for hire good mules for hire thread what did he mean by that word i stared at him and as he was passing me he looked at me long and hard and gave me a slow wink a little while later as i was ironing a piece of goods within doors the mule-driver himself appeared in the shop 
at your service, Master Salario, he cried gaily, for a long journey or a short one. If you're thinking of going a journey, I'm your man. Come, Master Salario, the sun is shining, lock up the shop. It seemed a curious piece of good fortune that this fellow should have appeared almost on the heels of the old woman herself, and the long and short of it was that I hired him for my journey at so much per week. He agreed to provide the necessary outfit, and we would depart that night. My preparations were soon made. The notes I had made of the old woman's directions I sewed inside my vest. I placed in my strong box the doublet and the button, and bestowed the box where it could not be found during my absence. At midnight my driver appeared. It was a starry night. I locked the shop, and we mounted our mules, preceded by four other animals, packed with our outfit. We quietly moved down the street, past the last houses, and into the forest. My search for the white unicorn had begun. From that night until we came in sight of the river Tarn, far beyond the confides of the forest kingdom, the adventures we encountered were numerous and fearful. We spent weeks on this perilous journey. In the second week we came to a dark castle on the side of a mountain. We crossed the drawbridge, which strangely happened to be down, though it was late at night, and blew the horn which hung by the gate. But perhaps it will be unnecessary to detail these adventures. Totally unnecessary, said the king. I can scarcely restrain my impatience to know how the story ends. There are several, however, of extraordinary interest, which you might perhaps be pleased to hear. The adventure of the roving griffin, the adventure of the blind giant, the adventure of Montesango's cave. Yes, yes, said Beaujon and Botkin in a loud whisper. No, said the king, I must beg you to reserve these pleasures for another occasion. I can't sit up all night. We reached at last on a sunshiny morning, the top of a little hill, from which we looked down on a narrow and shallow river, curved at this point outward in a crescent, and beyond it we saw a meadow of some two miles in depth, bounded at the rear by a high cliff, curved also outward like a crescent, and reaching the river at the right hand and the left of the meadow. The meadow thus enclosed resembled in shape a half-moon. Ah! I cried, the river Tarn and the half-moon pasture of Corby. I left my mule-driver and descended alone to the river. I found a ford, and though the water reached my shoulders, I had no difficulty in wading to the other side. I came there upon the pasture I had seen from the hill. It was green with tall grass and sprinkled with flowers. I looked about fearfully, but the unicorn was not in sight. Creeping cautiously, I made toward the high cliff and the further side of the meadow. Just before I reached it, I stopped to consult my notes. A circle of white stones on the side of the cliff, higher than a man's reach, in the centre of the circle, a blood-red flower growing on a long stem. Solario encounters Alp the Unicorn. I walked along at the foot of the cliff, and after some ten minutes, discreed above me the circle of white stones. The wall was perfectly upright, but its surface was rugged enough to give promise of a foothold. I turned my head, and at that instant saw, 
a short distance away farther down the line of the cliff standing knee-deep in the grass and flowers a small horse pure white with a pure white mane and tail and a sharp pointed horn in the middle of his forehead the unicorn stamped and gave me a piercing neigh as he saw me he stamped his hoof and threw his head high i started for the cliff he made for the same point as if to intercept me i knew that against that sharp horn i should be helpless it was now a matter of life and death i ran with all my might the unicorn came on at a gallop we approached the foot of the cliff together his head was down and i could already in imagination feel his horn in my side i doubled my exertions i reached the cliff and leaped up on the rocks just out of his reach as he swept by me i was safe i clung to my perch panting and then painfully climbed to the circle of white stones there in its centre was the blood-red flower the unicorn was standing below watching me when he saw me bend toward the flower he stamped shook his mane and gave a long piercing neigh as a horse will when he is in pain i plucked the flower at the root the unicorn's excitement was extraordinary he pranced and bounded shrieking in a manner almost human i shivered at the thought of going down to him but it had to be done i descended carefully holding the flower out in the unicorn's view his shrieks subsided into a moaning cry he shook his head up and down as if under some strong command i reached the ground i paused there for a moment for i confess i was desperately afraid little by little i advanced to him holding out the flower he pranced and whined i came within arm's length of his head and held the flower before his mouth with the quiver which shook his whole body he seized it in his teeth i quickly ran to his tail and searched where for the single black hair keeping well away from his heels covered by the brush of white hair i found it i seized it and gave it a mighty jerk out it came into my hand the unicorn trembled and tottered and there in his place before my eyes stood a handsome young man clad in a suit of soft and exquisite white leather he fell on his knees before me and kissed my hand thanks brave deliverer he cried the enchantment is broken i am myself again how glorious to be free i raised him from the ground and led him to a convenient place where we sat down and conversed I placed the precious black hair securely in the lining of my vest. If I, on my part, was overjoyed, the young man was positively beside himself. He laughed and cried by turns. I was, of course, intensely curious as to the circumstances of his enchantment. He willingly consented to relate them to me, and as soon as he had composed himself, a little, he began. The Story of the White Unicorn i was born said the young man in the island kingdom far out in the great sea the only son of a rich never mind never mind interrupted the king not now some other time it's my bedtime get on with your own story we've no time now to listen to my dear said the queen sweetly perhaps if you'd some other time said the king not now not now oh botheration said beaujean to botkin he won't let us hear anything i think it's too bad said botkin to beaujean the old man in the spangled coat sighed profoundly when the young man had finished his tale the day was far advanced 
i wished to take him back with me to vernicroft but he was anxious to return to the island kingdom without losing a moment we crossed the river together and parted i have never seen him since we made good speed homeward all our difficulties seemed to have vanished at first i was saddened by the thought of my approaching marriage to the hideous and hateful old hag but a new thought began to take possession of me and grew stronger as we rode along from day to day and my heart soon became lighter master as i was of such a key to power as lay secure within my west i could marry whom i choose why should i marry the ugliest creature i had ever seen when the most beautiful might be mine for the asking the more i thought of it the more indignant i became at the manner in which my easy good nature had been imposed on at every hand i had been grossly overreached the bargain was beyond measure unconscionable the exquisite face of the prince's daughter haunted me day and night and in short when we arrived at vernicroft my mind was made up i would not marry the old woman and i would exact from the prince a reward far more suitable than the one he had promised it was just on the stroke of midnight when we reached my shop i left my driver on the sill and procuring the necessary gold within paid him off and dismissed him he was a merry fellow and had served me well though i must say that i had never learned to like his way of cooking beans he bade me a gay farewell and as i turned back into the shop i looked over my shoulder expecting to see him with his mules on his way down the street to my astonishment there was positively nothing in sight the street was empty in that moment the driver and his animal had vanished i entered the shop the journey had cost me all the savings of my lifetime but what did it matter i was about to become rich beyond all my dreams i lit my lamp and looked about me there beside my tailor's bench sat the old woman herself her hands rested on the head of her crooked stick and her toothless jaws were working well she said you have it yes said i i have it good said she the prince's friend has been here many times he will come to-morrow i will return to claim you afterward good she rose leaned on her stick and nodding her head and grinning to herself hobbled out of the shop my resolution to save myself from this outrageous creature became absolutely fixed the button is sewed on with the unicorn's hair i drew out the black hair of the unicorn's tail and gave myself up to the pleasant task of sewing on the button it was soon done and it was well done nothing could be more secure I placed the doublet under my pillow and went to bed. In the morning I arose with a light heart. In order that the doublet might be near me, I put it on, and during the first three accidents proved its quality. First, a hot iron with which I was pressing my spangled coat slipped from my right hand and came down squarely on my left, and I felt no pain whatever next a needle pricked my finger and i was aware of no inconvenience and last as i was standing in the doorway some wicked boys with whom i was never a favourite hurled a stone at me striking me violently on the temple but its effect was no more than that of a soft cushion undoubtedly the unicorn's hair was the authentic thread at nightfall 
After I had put up my shutters, I stored the doublet secretly away and was making ready to go to bed when a knock sounded at the door and I admitted the prince's friend, smiling and gracious as before. He looked inquiringly at me. I bowed and smiled. Yes, I said. The work is done. The thread? He cried. I have it. Never fear. The work is done. He was in a state of great excitement. Come! he cried the carriage is at door bring it with you hurry in a moment i was in his carriage with a bundle under my arm we stopped at the same place as before and reached by the same route the room where i had first seen the prince and his daughter they arose in agitation as i came in and at a joyful signal from my companion came forward and grasped my hands truly the lady was more beautiful than i had dreamed you have succeeded said the prince i have said i your deliverance is assured and i described the accidents from which the doublet had protected me that day let us sit down said the prince and when we were all seated with fruit and wine before us he begged me to tell my story i told as much as i thought fit omitting any mention of the old woman the prince desired to see the doublet with my left hand i placed in his left the package i had brought with me he opened it and held up the contents alas it was not the doublet at all but some indifferent garment intended for another client he looked at me in amazement i was covered with confusion and begged him to overlook my carelessness he listened coldly you will bring the doublet here to-morrow he said sternly that is understood i said meanwhile i went on fortifying myself with another glass of the perfumed wine we may as well discuss the question of my reward that said the prince is already settled the case is altered i said if i had known what lay before me i could have made more fitting terms but i was in the dark the dangers and exertions of my existence since then have changed the case completely I am sure that you do not wish to deal with me unjustly. Think what my service means to you. In your place, I should think nothing too precious for my deliverer. A dark frown came over the prince's face. What is it you demand? said he. The prince receives the tailor's terms. I demand nothing, said I. But if you wish to have the doublet and be restored to yourself, your country, and your people, I shall ask only three things. One million pieces of gold, this house, and your daughter's hand in marriage. All three jumped to their feet. I sat calmly. At a look from the prince, his daughter, and the courteous strangers sat down again. They were both very pale. These are your terms, said the prince. You are resolved on this. Inflexibly, I said. Then we must consider, said he. When you bring the doublet to-morrow, you shall have my answer. For the present, let us dismiss the subject. His command of himself was superb. He began to talk lightly on indifferent subjects, and as he talked, his voice became gradually more distant, and I grew drowsy. I knew I was falling asleep. I remember nothing more until I awoke the next morning in my own bed. To my surprise, the old woman did not appear at all on that day. On the whole, the time passed pleasantly. I had no doubt the prince would accept my terms. I revelled in the happiness which was so soon to be mine. 
at night dressed in my spangled coat and with a bundle under my arm i sat in the shop waiting for my stranger i was too wise to take with me the true doublet and you may be sure the bundle contained a substitute it would be time enough to deliver the magic garment at the wedding it reposed meanwhile under lock and key concealed beyond the possibility of discovery it was late when the stranger appeared he conducted me to the prince and his daughter in chilly silence the prince was standing and his daughter sat on the divan her chin in her hand you have brought the doublet said the prince first i said do you accept the terms i must see the doublet he said with my left hand i placed the bundle in his left hand he opened it when he saw its contents he turned on me with a face like a thunder cloud what said i another accident well it's of no consequence the doublet is safe perfectly safe it will be placed in your hands at the wedding do you consent the magic doublet is suddenly produced he clapped his hands a door opened behind the divan and i could scarcely believe my eyes in hobbled with her crooked stick the old woman whom i had pledged myself to marry i was speechless with astonishment the prince clapped his hands again from other doors entered the eight black tailors whom i had seen before the ancient hag approached the prince and drew forth from her dress the doublet which i had left securely locked and hidden at home i saw it closely it could be no other with her left hand she laid it in the left hand of the prince in an instant he had put it on when he had buttoned the last button a startling change came over him and the eight black trailers all their faces grew a mottled blue then red and then the natural colour of healthy white skin at the same time the room began to contract the ceiling came slowly down and stopped just above my head the walls came slowly together and as they reached the prince his daughter the courteous stranger and the eight tailors gave way to them so that all these persons passed from view on the outer side and i was left alone with the hideous old woman with the walls coming in upon us by degrees until i thought we should be crushed i became dizzy i sank in terror upon the chair which stood beside me the walls came on from all four sides until the place wherein i sat was no bigger than a cupboard and there they stopped i breathed a sigh of relief and attempted to rise to my horror i could not move the old woman pointed a skinny finger at me and gave a loud and angry laugh which sent a chill up and down my spine she moved her finger about in strange figures she mumbled to herself a torrent of meaningless words and passing through the door which remained before me in one wall of my cabinet she left me and closed the door behind her the closet began to rock it seemed to rise and in a moment i knew that it was flying with me through space thus your majesty said the old man in the spangled coat i came to be imprisoned in my cell beneath the forest pool there i sat unable to move or speak for nearly a hundred years until the happy day when i was delivered by the excellent prince your grandson and for the refuge which has been accorded me in your majesty's castle i now tender to your majesty my grateful thanks and eh what did you say something exclaimed the king waking up from a sound slumber and rubbing his eyes oh yes 
I see. Very interesting. Very interesting. Something about a button, wasn't it? Bless my soul. I'd no idea it was so late. It's long past my bedtime. I'm always late for breakfast when I stay up past my... Mortimer, will you see to it that the castle windows are locked for the night? My dear, I think we will have bacon and eggs in the morning, and if it's at all possible, I'd like to have a piece of toast that isn't burned. The audience is now over. End of section number one.